Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Joshua Fogel about his great new book, Japanese Historiography and the Gold Seal of 57 CE, Relic, Text, Object, Fake. This came out in 2013 with Brill Publishers. On the surface, this is a story of a seal. It's a gold seal. It was purportedly uncovered in the 18th century, um, and it was supposedly from 57 CE, and you'll hear details about it um, in the course of the conversation. And it is about scholarship surrounding the seal, and it's about this artifact, but it's also about much, much more than that. This is a book that takes the seal as an exemplar, as a touchstone for thinking about and taking us through what Fogel describes as transformations in the evidentiary framework, the historiographical frame and texture, the ways that it has looked to do history over more than 200 years of time in the scholarship of Japan and about Japan. So it's a story that is just as much about transformations in what it has meant to tell a story about the past as it is a, a story about the seal itself. And because of that, it's important and relevant to much, much more than just the field of East Asian studies, although it's undoubtedly important for our field as well. Now, over the course of the conversation, you'll, he- you'll hear us talk about the important moments of transformation that Fogel identifies in the course of the book. I also want to emphasize here, um, we briefly talk about it in the course of the interview, um, but it really deserves emphasis, that he's translated and included as appendices a bunch of the sort of foundational essays that he describes um, as really kind of game-changing in the course of the book. And these are really important resources um, as we move forward for historians and also just for readers who want a flavor of the texture and the kind of taste of um, the nature of the argument that he's describing. So it's a really impressive book. Um, It's got beautiful pictures as well, as you'll hear about a little bit at the end of our conversation. And it was a pleasure to talk with Josh about it. So I hope you enjoy the book and I hope you enjoy the conversation. We're here today to talk with Joshua Fogel about his new book, Japanese Historiography and the Gold Seal of 57 CE, Relic, Text, Object, Fake. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Josh, and thanks very, very much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Carla. So can you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? And specifically, how did you come to the field of history of Japan? Or really, as we're going to um, sure get into when we talk about the book, this is really the, the history of Japan and integrating some elements of the history of China as well. So what brought you to the field? Um, well, actually, I'm a card-carrying Chinese historian. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm old enough so that when I was first got interested in China in 1969, 1970, Americans were not allowed to go to China, but unless your name was Edgar Snow, it was Victor or William Hinton. 
So China was to be studied from without. And in those years, and for quite some time before, and to a certain extent, a few years thereafter, the study of, of Japanese was very, very much pushed in American graduate schools, probably elsewhere, but I only knew uh, America at that time. Um, so I did a lot of Japanese uh, in graduate school, um, in addition to Chinese. Um, and then, of course, couldn't go to China, so I, I ended up going to Japan, but working on a topic um, at the time on Japanese uh, historian of China, Naito Kona, who was the subject of my dissertation and then my first real book. So I, I've always been interested in the interaction between China and Japan in the cultural sphere, intellectual sphere. Um, and, and this book is, in its own way, um, derived from that interest. Great. Now, the book itself explores transformations of an artifact, and we'll talk about that artifact, read through changes in the way it's been understood historically. And just as much, at least for me as, as one example of one reader, just as much as it's a book about the gold seal of 57 CE, it's also a work of historical epistemology, um, and, and really importantly so, and I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about that in the course of our conversation. So how did you come to this particular topic? Can you situate the book within the broader trajectory of the kinds of things that you've been working on? Yes, um, sure. In the year 2007, I was uh, honored to be asked to, to give the Reichauer Lectures at Harvard, which is a, a lectureship named, obviously, in um, the name of Edwin Reichauer, a Harvard professor, and then and before that, well, during that time, ambassador to Japan. And because Reichauer had a background um, in China, and in fact in Korea as well, the lectures were supposed to encompass China and Japan together. And, it, and over the years that they've been uh, given at Harvard, they, to varying degrees, have, have dealt with China and Japan interactions. Um, and several of the faculty members at Harvard informally um, kind of sidled up to me and said, you know, Josh, what we'd really like, and they're both social scientists, what we really like is a full history of Chinese-Japanese relations. It would really be useful. Um, <laughs> Rod McFarquhar and Ezra Vogel, you know, for social scientists for whom history began three or four days ago, and they really want someone else to do all this work. Um, well, I, I took it positively because you know, I love this stuff and um, decided, they both, by the way, when I met, reminded them years later that they were the inspiration for that. It's the first of those three lectures. They both denied having ever asked me to do it. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't matter. I, I enjoyed doing it immensely. So I um, uh, I wrote up this uh, lecture, which was a survey from high antiquity through the 19th century, um, and boiled it down into a lecture, um, that first of the three lectures at Harvard in 2007. Um and then I, I got so interested, and I thought, you know, this would, this would make a great book. We don't have a book like that. So let me – so I started – I sat down and started writing it. Um, and I thought, it's very interesting to me, but I think I'm going to probably put lots of readers right to sleep. So I need to break up the narrative in some way. And I, I suggested I, – I suggested to myself, because it's never – went much further, that I break it up by having little potted biographies of really important people in Sino-Japanese relations, or really important artifacts, or really important wars or events, or somehow with pictures and so on. And the very first one was the gold seal, and at the time I knew next to nothing about it, um, and did a little research and scratched the surface and discovered there were hundreds of articles about this. The gold seal is one of those things, and there are 
it would be interesting to create a list of them that are widely known in East Asia, in this case in Japan, but are completely unknown uh, outside. Every school child in Japan knows about the gold seal. It's in comic books, as I point out in several footnotes. It appears in several manga, historical manga. Um, and it's, it's just part of the culture. Uh, however, it's simply unknown except to ancient Japanese historians or people who teach surveys of Japan sometimes will know about it because it's the, the first event they might um, touch on when they're talking about Japan's relations with the mainland. So the more I got interested and I said, that, you know, let's, I'm going to put this big project, the big Sino-Japanese history project on hold, and let's look at this, this artifact more closely. And these, you know, I can't believe that there's something, A, I've never heard of, and B, hundreds of articles about it. So that, that's what got me going on. It's quite brilliant because, um, again, we'll talk about this over the course of our conversation, but it manages to tell a history of historiography by focusing in on this very particular, very concrete object that becomes an object and it doesn't start as an object. And we'll kind of get into that. Um, so I think, uh, Bravo and awesome job finding a way to tell what could be um, in other hands this amazingly um, out of control, broad kind of a story in a way that's perfectly clear, totally manageable, and makes perfect sense. So, um, yeah, again, I'm really excited to talk with you about it today, and I'm really, really thrilled to have had a chance to read it. So, let's get right into it. The book follows what you call in the introduction the biography of a gold seal that was purported to have been given by an emperor, Emperor Guangwu, the founding ruler of a dynasty called the Later Han, to an emissary from what's now Japan in the year 57, 57 CE. So as you mentioned in the introduction, it's the only seal of original Chinese provenance that's been found in Japan. It's also the oldest extant material object of which we have any kind of corroborating evidence that it passed from the mainland, from what we now call China, to what's now the Japanese archipelago. And more than 200 years of debate have surrounded this object. So it's an amazing case study here. Okay, so why, let's start off as with a kind of broad question, but with a question that I think motivates a lot of the book, and so let's talk about it in whatever, case, in whatever sense you'd like. Namely, why has this seal become so important in Japan? Why is this such, why is this something um, that right now, as you mentioned, school children know about? Why does this cause 200 years of debate? Um, and, What's and, the big deal, basically? Right, and this will answer, the, you know, where's the beef? Mm -hmm. And this will also answer, in part, the question of why it's not known outside of Japan. Right. Um, I, I think, and I argue this in the book, even though this, the gold seal itself goes through a number of transformations, um, that is from the perspective of Japanese scholars and, and, and interested lay people who have approached it, it goes through a number of transformations in what it signifies throughout it is tied in some meaningful way, and that changes, to Japanese identity, uh, what we would now call Japanese identity. This, this identity, of course, is, a, is an obsession of our, own, of our own time, but I think whatever language they may have used in different times, um, it's tied into, uh, because the, the inscription on the seal and the, and the, the rank of the seal within the, the hierarchy of seals and inscriptions and cords that are attached to seals, etc., etc. These are um, some of the great details it was <laughs> I took a, a little self-taught um, self knowledge on. Anyway, uh, because it's, it, um, it places Japan in a, in a subordinate position to the mainland, 
Um, that requires a certain amount of explanation. And right from the right off the bat, the very first and, and really quite brilliant essay uh, by the not the guy who discovered it, a farmer discovered the gold seal in, in 1784 when he was uh, working on an irrigation ditch. Um, but the scholar that was called in to, to say what this little piece of gold was uh, was all about, um, he immediately saw this. He knew what it was immediately because he could he knew from the inscription um, where it where it was mentioned in in one place in the entire Chinese corpus uh, of, of uh, historical records where it was mentioned. And and so, being a good Neo Confucian, he thought this was. A wonderful event. He called it an, an auspicious event in the history of, uh, of Japan. Namely, there here was an artifact that proved that Japan's relationship with the mainland, which he was perfectly willing to admit was superior, culturally superior to Japan, went back in his day 1,700 plus years. Um, now, that was fine for Neo-Confucians, who, for whom the fount of culture was on the mainland someplace and had then spread um, to other places, including Japan. But it was not okay for nativist scholars who would not buy that at all. And so th their option was either to ignore it, which is very, very hard to do, um, or to somehow try to debunk its importance. It was impo You couldn't ignore it. What's interesting is that it takes almost 60 years before anyone comes along and says that it's an outright fake. Uh, a nativist scholar um, who, did th who does that. But... Um, in the first, oh, 15, 20 years, I don't have the exact numbers, but something like that, there were several dozen essays written about this, um, and the nativist scholars jumped in with both feet to make all sorts of claims based on thin air, most of it, because you only have five characters there on the seal. It, it's not, there's not a lot of evidence, and it's mentioned very briefly in the, Han, the, the history of the later Han Dynasty, as you just mentioned, Carla. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to you have to try to place it in some sort of historical context, which relies a great deal on uh, your imagination. There, this was before the era of, of massive historical uh, archaeological digs in Japan, so there was none of that kind of corroborating evidence around. Um, so, but all sorts of fascinating essays are written about it, uh, trying to say, oh, it was from a, you know, this is a minor state, it doesn't represent all of Japan, it just went to China and claimed that it represented the entire archipelago. This was definitely not the kingdom of Wa, it was their imposters, their rebels, uh, all sorts of fascinating and, and again, completely unprovable um, theses were put out there by the um, the nativist scholars in opposition to the Neo-Confucians. Neo-Confucians kind of drop off the, the stage very quickly. They're there. But uh, in the first, that first generation of scholars, the, the nativist, and the nativists come up with a different reading for the inscription. How the inscription is read is very important. And um, their reading places it in a, a very localized, it's the nativist reading, very localized kingdom or statelet, I called it. You know, these are states that would... Um, Oh, you know, we'd make Rhode Island seem like a continent. And 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 they claimed that this state then somehow was either understood to represent all of Japan or represented itself as all of Japan. Um, in any event, um, the uh, uh, this debate goes back and forth. And, and so, but as I say, it's quite interesting that they didn't, no one for 50 or 60 years, and I'm not sure why, 
mm-hmm. saying that it was just a fake. And that would that would deal with it right quite quickly. You, it's just a fake. All right, if it's just a fake. But the, the problem is that maybe I do have an idea. The problem is if you're going to say it's a fake, it's an awfully expensive thing to fake. Where are you going to find pure gold and someone who can carve pure gold? And, and you know, when I look at it or when most scholars look at it now, I, you know, it looks nice to me. It looks like a well-done thing. But there were lots of seal specialists in Japan and, of course, elsewhere in East Asia. And they could tell if it was carved a long time ago and they were, how they carved. There's different ways you can carve straight into it or in an angle. And if you did that wrong, it would be immediately seen as fake. So it, it was it, it probably uh, and by the way, that essay, that first essay um, is not one of the strongest um, pieces of scholarship in the world. I translated it as an appendix to the book because I, I thought it was a unique piece. Um, and it wasn't published until 60 years or 50 or 60 years uh, after it was written. So it had no real impact in its own time. So anyway, that's the long answer to your question about um, why such a you know, why is this little block of, of gold so um, uh, productive in terms of scholarship? Why do the Japanese care so much about it? I think it's because being the first object, as you just said, Carla, and being um, the first object inscribed with Chinese characters, that's what this first scholar, Kami Nanmei, is his name. It's, it, is the, it is the arrival in Japan of culture itself, in the sense that culture and writing are the same phenomenon. Right. No, I think this is great. It gets us right into the core of the issue. So uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with the seal, this is a seal that is gold. It's inscribed with five Chinese graphs um, that the inscription, I think you give a... um, a roughly modern translation early on in the first chapter, something like seal awarded to the ruler of the state or state let of Na within Wa under the Han. So uh, what exactly that means, whether that's the right uh, way to read the inscription, these are all things that are going to come up in a little bit. But just to sort of give listeners a sense, um, there's a snake or a serpent carved on top, and that's going to become really important um, for some uh, commentators on the seal later on. And there's a purple cord involved. And so as you um, as you mentioned early on, this was a gold seal that was purportedly unearthed by a farmer named Jinbi in the village of Shikanoshima on Kyushu in the late 18th century. And it marks, I mean, this is important, as you mentioned, because it marks potentially the entrance of this statelet into international affairs, which is a world that was defined by the Han Empire. So this is a really, really important document, uh, a, a sort of object document or a relic or a fake, as it's going to turn out to be for all kinds of reasons. Now, um, you just mentioned, and just to set out for listeners, the book, um, What the one of the things that the book is going to do is use the case of the seal to show the ways that grounds of scholarly debate transform over time as does the nature as part of these transformations of what is considered to be evidence. And so one of the contributions that the book makes, among many others, is that some of these major moments in these transformations of what it looks like to do history, what counts as evidence, are marked by really important, um, important as construed in different ways, landmark essays. And you include appendices, as you alluded to before, that consist of translations of some of the most important of these essays, each marking an era in the history and historiography of the seal. So we'll talk about those eras in just a moment. 
Okay, um, but before we leave the first part of the book, um, as a historian of science, I have to ask, because one of the um, points that you make early on and that comes up repeatedly in different chapters of the book is a point about the engagement of how you're thinking about this in terms of paradigms, right, in terms of um, science studies or Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. Now, this is going to make sense for listeners once we start talking um, later on about the importance of science and scientific evidence as part of the biography of this object. But before we get there, um, for a, you know, for someone reading a book on Japanese and Chinese history, it always strikes me when the author engages Kuhn and structure of scientific revolutions and the idea of a paradigm into a work of Chinese history. I, I think it's a really wonderful kind of transdisciplinary moment here. So can you talk a little bit about that? Is, were you, or in what ways did science studies scholarship, if at all, impact how you were thinking about this project? Um, you, you hit right on it. It's, it's Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions that I was thinking of. I, I didn't want to say hard and fast that this is you know, Newton's world that's transformed by Einstein's world, etc., because I don't think it's quite uh, works quite in lockstep with that notion, but it's incredibly suggestive. Uh, and, and I see uh, the historiography shifting as the, the basis of what constitutes uh, proof in an argument, what constitutes truth, the basis of truth, um, changing as well. So that in the in the first, it's almost a hundred years, from the from actually it's a little bit more than a hundred years, the founding of the dis- rediscovery of the gold seal in 1784 through the very end of the uh, 19th century, we have this debate going back and forth between Confucians and um, nativists, uh, and arguing for the most part, at cross-purposes, in the sense that each of them has an, a set of classics that they consider the root of all truth. Um, and it, it's sort of like when um, Darwinians and, and uh, um, creationists argue. They, they're not really arguing with each other because one has they have different concepts of what constitutes truth. So that, you know, they, they, for the Confucians, it's the Confucian classics, and for the nativists, it's the, the uh, ancient Shinto classics. Um, and those are the ones they refer to, and those are the. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it's almost as if, if if it's not mentioned, for instance, for the nativists, if the gold seal is not mentioned as it isn't in the Nihon Shoki, the, the ancient history of Japan, then it can't have ha- existed in the, in the time or been of any importance if it was ignored. And and when this argument is thrown out, Confucians will say it's not mentioned because the Nihon Shoki was written seven centuries later. And at the time of the gold seal, the Japanese had no written language, so it was very hard for them to write about it. These kinds of uh, arguments go back and forth. But in the in the Meiji period, as as most um, students and scholars know, things began to shift in Japan, as everything began to shift in Japan. And history, historical studies was no exception to that. Um, it was heavily influenced by, by Germanic, Central European modes of scholarship, philology, phonology, all of these disciplines come in with like gangbusters. And um, at this point, the gold seal uh, is now no longer invested with any kind of, uh, what should we call it, quasi-religious almost, or or what I refer to in the book as a relic. It no longer has that um, resonance any longer. Now it's begun to be seen as a kind of text. And a great scholar uh, at the end of the 19th century, named Miyake Yonikichi, um, approaches it using all the best knowledge that he has at his um, 
fingertips in, in primarily phonology and historical philology and reconstructs what the inscription must have meant at the time. Mm-hmm. He, he, he makes the interesting argument that, and to us it's almost natural, but at the time it must have been um, relatively new, that Chinese and Japanese did not read those characters the same way in the first century as they read them in the 18th or 19th century, that characters change, their regional dialects in both in China and in Japan. Um, and in order to uh, to get at what those were pronounced like in their day and time, um, you have to use the, the, the new science, for Japan at least, and even in Europe, the relatively new sciences, in quotation marks, um, of phonology and philology. And he brings those to bear. And it's wonderful if you ever see a picture of Miyaki Onikichi, because it seems that every picture that I've been able to find of him, he's wearing, you know, um, a coat and tails, you know, he looks, he's, he's, you know, except for the fact that he's Japanese, he could have walked out off the podium at a European university at this, in the same time. Um, and, and that, his reading of, of the gold seals inscription, the one that, that you just mentioned, Carla, is the one that still is the one that, you know, when you look at your average textbook in Japan, is the one that's given it, and it's referred to always as a teiset. So, you know, this is the definitive thesis. There are countless people will contend against that. Um, but still, it's become taste sets that can be overturned, and it may be overturned someday. But uh, right now, it's the um, the standing thesis. Um, mm-hmm. First, Japan went through some serious changes in the first half of the 20th century, and ordinary scholarship was um, was not always easy to do. But after the war, again, everything undergoes transformation. Everything undergoes uh, reevaluation in Japan. And in the mid 1960s, a Japanese scholar. Um, Okazaki um, goes, and I translated his essay as well in there. He's actually given access to the gold seal, and this is the, when the gold seal was found originally. It, it goes to the local um, magistrate. He has this Neo-Confucian scholar I mentioned earlier in the 18th century evaluate it, write up an essay, um, and then it's sent off to the um, the daimyo of that domain's uh, storehouse, and it disappears from history forever, not forever, but for, for, for a very, very long time. Um, now, when the imperial, uh, when the Tokugawa family exactly uh, uh, falls and the, and the Meiji period comes in, it's moved to the new National Museum. But it's not sitting in a museum the way it, it is now, if you can go to Fukuoka and see it now. But it's, it's not available. Somehow he gains access to it uh, through connections. And he and a bunch of uh, science friends, I guess, assistants, carry out some, the first, well, you know, I, I should say the level of science in the 1960s, whatever it was, um, those, those levels of, of, of expertise are brought to bear on the gold seal for the first time, really. So they get the exact to like four decimal points, the weight of it uh, in, cent, in, in uh, milligrams and, and so on. And you get the exact size of each of the sides it looks like a perfect square, but if you go to three or four decimal points, it's not quite a perfect square. I don't know what they were expecting of, of first century of carvers of seals, but in any way, uh, and, 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 it, and it looks very carefully at the uh, scales on this serpent or snake, whatever it is that's, that forms the handle. And so on. And, and this is a, it's a very, very interesting essay. Okazaki has also, also looked at dozens of other seals that have been dug up in Korea and China and compares it all the gold seals that are found, all the seals with gold 
with um, snakes on them. All the seals that had potentially had purple uh, cords. Now, the purple cord that's mentioned all the time long ago must have disintegrated. Um, you know, the, the cord material doesn't last quite as well as, as gold does uh, over the centuries. Uh, so anyway, he writes this wonderful essay, but now it's all science. Now, now the, the, the grounding of truth is hard, cold science. It's still pretty. It's still a nice, shiny gold seal, but it's no, nobody invests it with anything more than the fact that, and I call it an object at this point. It's become an object, and it's, um, and, and it's as I said in the book, it's worth no more than its weight in gold, and uh, it's um, it won't. It will be another few decades before anyone else comes along to contest that thesis. Now, you can't contest science. We live in an era where science is the, is the grounding of everything, right? I mean, if we had lived 200 years ago, it might have been uh, the Bible, religion, or in Asia, it might have been Confucianism or something else. But now it's science. And so that, and I, I say in the book, or in the introduction to the book, you just, if you, if you doubt that for a second, look how many people are being let out of prison because of, of DNA evidence. And their juries of their peers sent them away to prison, often for a very long time. It's incredibly sad, actually. Mm-hmm. And and then you come along, a scientific study proves that we, with the advancement that we have in DNA sampling, and and they're out very quickly. Um, there are there are similar kinds of things. Science science is now the ground. So what's what's the choice if you don't if you if we haven't moved beyond that? There's no I, we I think very few of us other than you know hardline postmoderns. Uh, beyond that, you know, to the next stage. Um, so I, what, what's happened is that in the last few years, m- several people, one in particular, has come along and argued that it's a total fake, a complete fake. But now he's filled in all the arguments that I mentioned a minute, minute ago um, were lacking in the earlier, uh, the earliest claim of a fakedom. He's, he's got the carver picked out. He's got the source of gold. He's got all, all sorts of things. Now, needless to say, when, his, when this guy Miura Spooky is his name, when Miura came along, he's a professor. He's not some crackpot. He may be a crackpot. I don't know, but he's, he is also a professor. He um, <clears throat> published this book about five years ago, and it uh, raised quite a stir all, all over Asia, China too, Taiwan too. And um, it led to all kinds of magazine interviews and debates and so on. So uh, the gold seal doesn't go away. Um, it's the, it's there. And, and that's where we stand now. Um, somewhere between people lining up to call it a fake and, or those who claim that it's, uh, uh, you know, by hard scientific evidence demonstrates that it's the real thing. We have had more sophisticated, quite a bit more sophisticated scientific uh, analyses of the gold seal based on the 50 years or 45 years since Okazaki had access to it. Um, but of course, you know, science is not the kind of thing that naysayers allow to get in the way. Um, look at the, the, the truthers in the United States, the birthers or the truthers or whatever they're called. I mean, even, even when President Obama showed his birth certificate, they were, you know, uh, it's a fake or something like that. They'll, they'll come up with a, a reason to deny it. Um, so the, the debate over the gold seal is, is not going away anytime soon. Thank you. Now, what the book does, I think, really beautifully is it takes this um, kind of 
the architecture of transformations that you've just really nicely shown us the outline of, marked by these major moments that are typified by particular essays by particular scholars, each of which kind of encapsulates an era of the transformations of historiographical and um, mode, uh, sort of evidentiary regime um, in which and within which the seal is understood and uh, that the understanding of the seal really exemplifies. And it gives us this really rich account taking us through in detail the biography of these transformations. And so these transformations um, being uh, alluded to frequently, well, occasionally in the language of paradigms and Kuhn and, um, again, the kind of science studies approach that I think is really beautiful here. So we won't have time to talk about all of the detail regarding all of the eras. Um, So, but that's what I hope listeners will um, find the book and get the book and read for that because, again, it's extraordinarily rich. But let's talk about some of these landmarks um, as a way of uh, understanding what are some of the most important changes in terms of a history of evidence here that you give us so beautifully. So you've mentioned already this Neo-Confucian scholar who really launches the debate. This is the um, the figure who typifies era one, Kame Nanme, and he lived from four, 1743 to 1814. So he's got a really important position in the domain's educational system at that point. And he puts forth this argument um, about the seal that is um, in terms that, as you mentioned a little bit later on, nativists take issue with. So what are the most important elements of Kame Nanme's argument and the ways that he's thinking about evidence that we and the listeners need to know in order to understand by the end of the story how he then resurfaces as the kind of main figure in this conspiracy theory once the object becomes a fake. So what what are the most important elements, basically, of his argument um, that ground the architecture of the story? Yeah. um, I should say that reading Kame Nanme's essay, it's not that long, it's only about 14 or 15 pages. Um, And unlike everything else he wrote, he wrote this in in literary Japanese, he wrote everything else in Chinese. Um, And reading this essay was, uh, it it had to have been the most brilliant thing I'd ever read at the time. I brought tears to my eyes. This doesn't happen very often, (laughs) reading literary Japanese. You've got 14 dictionaries in front of you, and and you're constantly going back and forth, and yet he, he seems to have anticipated every possible counter-argument and dealt with it by... He, he wrote in, in a, a familiar Confucian style of um, Chinese called Wenda, you know, this uh, question and answer. Except he wrote the questions too, of course, so he knew the answers he was going to write, but sometimes the questions seem like, oh my God, how is he ever going to answer that question? It's such a difficult question. And then you have to pinch yourself and remind yourself that he wrote the question too, so he's got to have the answer. But it makes the essay seem that much more brilliant. And you have to realize, he only wrote, he wrote this in three weeks um, between when he was introduced by the magistrate to the, to the Gold Seal and when he delivered up this essay to uh, as, as an evaluation of the Gold Seal. Um, so he anticipates... You know, in fact, I should actually add to that that in later generations, people think his his um, answers and his essay is too good. They've come. To, some scholars have come to the the conclusion that no human being can write an essay this brilliant in such a short period of time, um, and that it for them is 
further proof that he was involved in the conspiracy to fabricate it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't I don't buy that at all. But I, I should mention that it's uh, it's it's out there. Um, well, you know, he he deals with all the possible questions. Is this the real thing? How could it have ended up where it ended up? Uh, and uh, you know, nobody knows how it ended up in this irrigation ditch um, lodged between some stones in Kyushu. Um, but he comes up with a plausible answer, and others come up with other plausible answers. Um, how? You know, why is it important that there's writing on it? Um, is it the, the, one of the really touchy issues between the Confucian, Neo-Confucians and the nativists is that the uh, middle character of the inscription, um, which he reads as, well, I forget exactly, he doesn't have a particularly convincing explanation of the reading, but that, that middle character can be understood to mean a servant or slave or, 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 or some sort of underling um, which who is in service to the Han dynasty who gives now he you know of course no one has yet questioned him on this when he writes this up but he says no 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 don't worry it's just there as a space filler for um, I forget what he I think he thinks it's the genitive particle no it's similar note than no in Japanese um, but he, he he anticipates that the nativists are going to be really bothered by this, and, it, and it's going to force them to either deny its veracity, its verisimilitude, or, or they're going to have to, they're going to, you know, have apoplexy. So he um, he comes up with this explanation before, uh, even before anyone. And, and it's funny because his explanation is quite good. It, it, it's not the one that will win the day, but it's not bad, all things considered. Um, but that won't stop anybody from um, bringing it up over and over and over again. And that's true of his other arguments, too. It's as if they didn't read his essay. I mean, it's just not exactly unknown in the world of scholarship that people don't listen to each other. When they talk. <laughs> but it's, it's quite interesting to see. I, and it's also you have to remember that this is not a time when you could go to your computer and send your essay off to 2000 people in two seconds. You know, not only was communication limited by, you know, people walking and carrying the mails from place to place. But there was also very strict regulations about travel in Japan at this time. Uh, nonetheless, word gets out. Somehow word gets out through personal connections. And uh, and then this essay is then has to be copied. You, know, you can't take it over to your Xerox, to your local Kinko's and make 400 copies either. So it, people have to copy it out by hand, and they do. Um, and it's, it then spreads and the arguments get out there. But still... Many people seem to have missed the last memo, and so they'll bring back repeatedly arguments that he's dealt with rather well. I mean, not everything, like as I just said, his reading of the his interpretation of, of how we should understand rather than reading the inscription. That's nobody buys that. That that disappears as quickly as it's suggested. Um, but um, other arguments are are, are 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 pretty interesting, and and most of them fall by the wayside pretty uh, i mean people ignore them if they don't if they if they want to deny the gold seal its place of importance they have to ignore those arguments and they're they're very good at doing that so this is really the first era in the interpretation of the seal. And as you mentioned um, in this part of the book, the period is really exemplified by debate over neo or debate 
between Neo-Confucians, as um, evidenced by um, Kamenanme, and nativists over issues of Japanese identity. Now, in this debate, both camps are relying, as I think you've mentioned um, just a little bit ago, on belief in the authority of classic texts. They may be different classic texts, but that's still the ground for um, the er, evidentiary basis of this debate, which brings us to the second era. Um, Now, this is an era which sees a transformation of this and the transformation of the seal from a relic then into another form. In which the way in the wake, as you describe it here, of Western influences of various types, with you know Western, I have in scare quotes as as we do, a reliance on philology and historical phonology really replaces these earlier approaches, and the sort of grounding of evidence also changes um, quite importantly. So, do you want to talk about this second era? What do we need to know about this then to understand um, the transformation that's going to happen after? Um, yeah, I, just, I, I touched on this a moment ago. Mm-hmm. I, I think when it, when we get into the Middle Meiji years, it, it's no longer, you can't, you know, say, oh, and it says in the Nihon Shoki, dot, 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 QED. Mm-hmm. You, you, you can't, um, or, you know, Confucius says, end of discussion. It doesn't work that way anymore. Now you have to do something um, uh, more familiar, at least, to Western scholars, and, and, and that is you have to show that there's, some textual evidence, or that there is a, a way to understand something philologically, meaning the use of, of language as the basis of, um, of, uh, of proof, of truth somehow. And and the this and in this period, you you know, after a long time of trying to figure out what the, um, for instance, the the inscription um, should be read in Japanese, in other words, interpreted. Uh, it, it, this is the period when Miyaki Yonikichi comes along on the, and says, um, now, let's take each of the characters apart and look at them very closely, and let's let's try to figure out, you know, in the, its time and place how... I should point out, let me just backtrack and point out that of the five characters on the inscription, three of them, the first and the last two, are completely transparent. There's, there's no... Nobody debates them, really. It's the second and the third characters that are, are the troubling ones. And um, he's the, he comes along with this explanation based on histor- history, based on language, based on how they would have been pronounced, um, in, in his case, 1900 plus years earlier, or 1800 plus years earlier. And um, on that basis, um, comes up with a, an explanation and therefore uh Based on the reading, based on philology, based on language, he can explain uh, the transmission of the gold seal from the Han, the later Han Dynasty, to uh, this statelet in Japan. So now, nobody's nobody's looking for a reference in an ancient Chinese or Japanese text any longer. Now it it has to be done on the basis of this kind of, uh, I guess we call it social science, or it, it, in, in, in Europe it's called, you know, Wissenschaft. This is science. Um, so we'll put science in, in scare quotes um, um, at that time. And so that's that's where the discussion moves. And so if we were using the Cunian model, this is where we have a paradigm shift. Great. Thank you. So as we move into part two, we've already seen that the seal has transformed from a relic into a text. Here we have the seal transforming from a text into what you call an object. 
Now, now we've seen the first era, the second era. In this part of the story, in this part of the book, doubts start arising about this farmer, Jinbi, and his rice field, and what happened in the three weeks before he putatively discovered the seal and it was reported to authorities. There are also problems raised according to, or that have something to do with the topography of the site. Um, how, how did it end up in this particular kind of land? And you mentioned that a little bit earlier, and you talk about that, and your own, actually, uh, right? I think you mentioned visiting this site yourself in 2008 and also having some questions about the topography of the site. Okay, so this brings us to the third era, and here we see the emergence of modern scientific apparatus and its displacement of philology as a mode of evidence. This is typified um, in the third era by the work of Okazaki Takashi in the late 1960s, who really bases his arguments on scientific evidence. And you've talked um, a little bit about that already, so I don't ask you to talk too much more about it. One of the really interesting things that happens, though, in the course of talking about this third era and the concomitant transformations in terms of um, the historical epistemology surrounding um, this object and beyond, is you talk about the importance of post-war Chinese archaeology to what's happening here. This is really a theme that, you know, the more I talk with historians of China or archaeologists of China or um, Chinese studies specialists at all, and also um, Japanese studies specialists, more and more lately, I mean, this is what people are pointing to in their work as something that needs to be understood if we're to understand um, most, actually, eras of Chinese history. So we're really seeing, I think, for us in our epistemic moment right now, you and I, we're really seeing a kind of remarkable turn um, to acknowledging and celebrating the importance of archaeology to historians um, really explicitly in, in a way that's maybe not new, but certainly um, very noticeable in terms of the way our colleagues talk about history. Here, um, you're pointing to a particular historical moment where um, post-war Chinese archaeology becomes a really important part of the story. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because that seems really well, important here. There, there is no more nationalistic discipline than archaeology. Uh, particularly in cultures in East Asia, which celebrate their antiquity, um, or at least traditionally have celebrated antiquity as the as a golden age. So, when you the, the People's Republic has, even when it was very poor, poured tons of money into archaeological digs, um, and and came up. You know, the very first tourists that started, at least from the United States and Europe, and, and when tourism became big, the thing they wanted to see was. Um, well, you know, to a certain extent, the Great Wall, the Ming tombs, but they really wanted to see those terracotta warriors that had been dug up uh, near Xi'an. So, I mean, there is if you can prove your past goes back really far, that's um, money is just being poured into archaeology. It's really it seems to somehow prove the, you know, the longevity of a regime. Somehow, long and ancient and old is very important uh, in East Asia and China in particular, and. That has not stopped for a moment. There are archaeological digs all over China. The problem, of course, with China is that as soon as you make a statement about archaeology, um, and I'm, I know this only from the limited area of the of seals that have been dug up, you someone will disprove it the next week. Because all you have to do is stick your hand in the ground and you find something that disproves the previous theory. It's very dangerous as a result to make arguments um, like this never happened uh, or... That couldn't have existed uh, because, you know, it, 
literally within a few years, a, a Chinese archaeologist or somebody on a team is going to find something to disprove you. And this has happened repeatedly with the gold seal, where you have these very, very brilliant scholars in, in China or uh, in, later in Japan who uh, will make claims like, well, this doesn't fit into the Han system of seals um, from what we know. And therefore, it's very doubtful. And then, you know, a gen- within a generation, hundreds of seals are dug up. And the whole our whole idea of the system of seals has gone through many changes, but we'll go through a change and then all of a sudden it does fit somehow into it. So uh, it's it, Archaeology is a, a hugely important field in, into which, and it's in, in Japan as well, by the way. There's archaeological digs all over Japan as well um, that, are, that are going on all the time. Um, so it, there, there's no way to underestimate the importance of this. I'll give you just one funny example. There's uh, In the book, I talk about several seals, golden seals, with, with, um, um, that, are, that are roughly contemporaneous. Mm-hmm. With the gold seal, and yet are used to place it in its in its time and possibly in the foundry where it was where it was made. Um, and one of them uh, was dug up um, outside the city of, of what is now Guangzhou, Canton. So when I was giving, but at the time that it was made, it this area around Guangzhou was part of a northern Vietnamese kingdom. And so I, I when I was giving the very first talk I gave on this was in Australia of all places. I um, I mentioned that it was, you know, this kingdom was founded by a ch- second or third generation Chinese immigrant who had seceded from the Han Empire. He created his own little kingdom. And so I, I gave it its, its Vietnamese reading, and I said that this is probably a um, probably best thought of, although, you know, it's hard to impose national boundaries 2,000 years ago, but still. I, I did that anyway. One of the young women in the, in the audience says to me, I, "You know, I, she was a graduate student at the University of Sydney, I think. Um, I'm from Guangzhou, and that, I know that that is a Chinese object there. That you, this is not my gold seal; it's another gold seal." I said, "Well, you know, that's possible, but I think imposing names that are important now on times long ago, when you know, even the concept of China was very different. Anyway, no, no, she cut me off. No, 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 it's a Chinese object. So you, you can see that. I said, all right, fine, it's a Chinese object. It's it's a uh, it's a very nationalistic discipline, archaeology, and or at least it feeds nationalism. I, I think archaeologists are not necessarily more nationalistic than anybody else, but their work gets supported uh, in a big way Um probably more than in other disciplines. One of the things that's feeding archaeology, and I heard a fascinating talk a few years back, I think I mentioned it in the book, um, uh, here at the Royal Ontario Museum, by a young Chinese woman working on the, the, the Six Dynasties period, and she said that um, there's been an explosion of artifacts discovered in China in, in just the last 20 or 30 years. Why? Well, as the four modernizations have moved on and goods are being transported across great distances and goods are being brought to cities and villages um, that are far from the main centers of population, they've had to widen the highways to, to mm-hmm. facilitate larger trucks to carry things. And when you dig into mountainsides, it's like sticking your hand in the ground in China. They found all kinds of incredible things in, in uh, all parts of China. Um, so there's no end to this. This is going to go on and on and on. I, uh, I, I just, but it is, and as you point out, Carla, it is a fascinating topic. Great. Thank you so much. 
So as we move into the kind of last um, era that you describe here and then beyond, we move from the seal as an object to a seal as a possible fake. And you bring us into the fourth era here um, with Miura Sukayuki, who you've already talked about a little bit. Um, Chapter 9 is devoted to talking about his 2006 book in detail and to taking us through really the texture and the fine-grained analysis of what his critique was and how it actually really nicely um, ties back back to the first era and the kinds of claims made by um, the Neo-Confucian scholar who typified that era. So it's really um, quite nice. Now, this is a way of understanding in this era the seal as, as you call it, pure fakery. And you call, or you refer to um, Yura Tsukiyuki as a conspiracy theorist. And he's a conspiracy theorist who's focused on Kanmei Nanmei as kind of the main culprit in the f- conspiracy to fake the seal and then to spread it um, locally and then nationally. So, I think we should. I think we should have a spoiler alert here. Okay. Right, right, okay. Sorry, yes. So so listeners will have to read that chapter in order to figure out exactly what's going on there. Um, but so I guess without totally spoiling the surprise, is there um, anything in particular about this era and about um, this way of um, not for the first time trying to claim that the seal was a fake, but certainly in a new way claiming that the seal is a fake and grounding it in a new kind of evidentiary base? Is there are, what are some of the most important elements of that without giving anything away that you don't want to give it away um, for listeners? Um, that's, of course, the hardest thing to say because we live in this era now. Right. And, yeah, we have no distance from it. But, you know, if I were to be asked, you know, as you just did, uh, I think part of it is now that at least we like to think that the sky is the limit. We can criticize anything. We're open. All things, and nothing is holy any longer. So, um, you can, uh, uh, you know, the gold seal is not, you know, it, it, it may have once had some, resonated with some sort of, of importance. He's now sh- attempting to show this guy, uh, Professor Miura, that it's a total fake. And he, he as, I, as I said a moment ago, he's, he is a bona fide scholar who has written other books where he's up, tried to show other things, is it, of, of medieval and ancient Japanese literature, tried to show certain chapters of other Japanese um, texts are fakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's this is, you know, somebody once asked me what I you know, what I th- thought his primary interest in doing this was, and I think maybe it's his bank account. But I, I think you know the, in this book that he wrote, which immediately was published in paperback, will will sell more than um, almost any other book on this subject. Um, but it's not; a, it has to be taken seriously, which is why, as you just mentioned, Carla, I wrote a whole chapter about it because he he is a smart guy. And he's got important and interesting arguments. Even if you ultimately um, don't buy his argument, um, it, he has questions that have to be answered. And he doesn't, he's not definitive about a lot of it. A lot of it is um, he throws uh, open questions. He raises his doubts. Now, this is a attack that conspiracy theorists use all the time, namely they raise a bunch of doubts without connecting them, and then they go, see, you know, that sort of, um, you know, you think of uh, Kennedy assassination conspiracies or, or whatever. As long as you raise some doubt in the received thesis, the taste sets are here, um, then all of a sudden one is to assume the whole explanation collapses and we go back to the drawing board. No, he's, he's not that, he's not like that, but he does, he does do that a number of times where he'll just raise a large number of doubts 
But he, as I said before, he's better than that because he also wants to – he has to come up with an explanation for how it could have been faked. It's no mean feat, as I said before, how, how this could have been faked in, you know, in the early 1780s. And, and he does a reasonable job of that. Those, there are those who have come along and have been very critical of him, of course. But um, nonetheless, he, he is someone that has to be dealt with. I, in my chapter, I, I try to take each of his points that I think are important one by one. Those that I think, you know, he may, he scores points on, I mentioned, and where I think his uh, argument is a bit shoddy. Um, I also mention it. But I, I, I think um, he deserves to be uh, mm-hmm. treated with, uh, with evenly, fair hand. He's not a, he's not a nut who's, um, who, you know, he's not Donald Trump here that, who's just come up with a wild thesis about uh, he, he's a serious scholar. Um, whether or not his argument will hold, that we don't know. Um, it has, as I said, detracted some followers. It's alienated other people. Um, but uh, more recently, and I think it was 2009, a scholar, uh, Suzuki is his name, Stone, who uh, really had access to the gold seal and took science to a new level with it, with this incredible microphotography that he did where he enlarges these pictures many times the size of the seal itself, and he can get it scratches on the inside of where the individual characters were carved. And he makes arguments based on, he's a metallurgist himself, a history of metallurgy is his field. And and the book is almost impossible to read because it's, it's like reading a work of science. He's got a, he's got a whole um, vocabulary at the back. And for his Japanese readers, he's got a whole vocabulary at the back. But it's again, it's suggestive, and uh, he throws open doubt. He makes no argument one way or another. He, except that he finds humanists and social scientists kind of ridiculous. <laughs> he says that. right, that's that's kind of funny, actually. But um, being a, you know the, the kind of uh, I don't know hard nosed scientist that he appears to be. But it's interesting that he's decided to take on this subject now uh, and, and write this book. So yeah, I I think we're very much. Um, on uh, Terry Incognita at this point, and uh, which is great. I think that's where scholarship uh, needs to be. Um, and uh, from here, I don't know. I, as I say in the book, this last stage, which I've called the one of you know the, the object, the, the the gold seal as a fake. It's unclear whether this is going to sustain itself. Uh, I just don't know. Um, but um, come back to this in, you know, in 50 or 60 years and we'll, well, I'll be a little too old at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's just, we're just, uh, we're we're just in the midst of it and it's, it's hard to gain any perspective on what you're in the midst of. Well, the final chapter of the book, um, chapter 10, does get a little bit of perspective on it nonetheless. And so you, I won't ask you to talk about this in detail because we've taken up a lot of your time already. But I'll just mention for listeners, um, this is a really nice concluding chapter that talks about the institutionalization of the gold seal and um, focuses on two measures in particular that have done this, um, a gold seal steely and also the designation of the gold seal as a national treasure. And it talks about how these have impacted scholars 
scholarly investigation and kind of the attitude toward evidence um, of that scholarly investigation in this current era of work on the seal. You also talk about um, some of the most promising areas of future research, including, as you've done actually here, ways of understanding the seal as a, as you call it, a token of changing times. And so this is really, I think, an exemplary work in that vein. You also um, suggest some other ways in which right now thinking with the seal might help transform how we think about Japan, its topography, its regional centers um, in a really different way. So there's a lot here that's really promising um, for listeners who may not you know, be inherently interested in the history of gold seals, um, but are interested in a lot of um, the other kinds of fields and questions that you're bringing to bear on this object. So it's really, really nice. You end with, and this is the last um, substantive question that I'll ask you before we wrap up. You end with a discussion of the fact that people have asked you a lot um, when you give talks about this, whether or not you think the seal is a fake or not. And I'm not going to ask you that question because I completely agree with you, as you um, put it in the book, that whether or not it's a fake doesn't really impact your argument. Um, But I thought I'd give you a chance in case you want to talk a little bit about that for listeners to talk about why that is. Um, Why does the issue of whether or not the seal is fake um, not really, or, or how does that question um, engage with or not the kind of work you're trying to do with the seal? Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for not asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I frequently am asked, now that you've spent whatever X number of years, what do you think? I'm not, I don't think of myself as part of this discussion. I'm not an expert on seals at all. Um, uh, there is a word for that, syllogology or something like that. But I'm I'm um, I'm approaching this as as someone interested in historiography, as someone interested in the history of the debate over the gold seal, and the changing perspectives on the gold seal by Japanese scholars uh, over the last two plus centuries. So for me, it's less important. If the gold seal turns out to be a fake, that's very very interesting, of course. Um, and I'll, and if it had been proven that it was a fake before I finished the book, I mean definitively proven somehow. Um, that would have been great, but uh, it, um, it whether or not it, it is is for a historiographer for the person who's studying changing views of history that's that's not uh, a relevant question. Um, mm-hmm. I did want to mention, if it's okay, Carla, one thing that this uh, professor Miura, um, the, the guy who wrote this recent book claiming it was a fake. Mm-hmm. Um, says, you know, I have, he claims that he hasn't had access to the gold seal, uh, and the gold seal is, is not easily, I mean, it, it sits in a glass case, you can't take pictures of it, uh, and, but you can't study it. He says, you know, science is, he's writing in 2006, science has uh, developed to quite a level, you know, we could, I don't know, shoot gamma rays at it or something and find out pretty quickly whether the gold seal is 200 years old or 2,000 years old. Um, but uh, why hasn't the government done this? And he doesn't answer the question. He doesn't. He, I mean, presumably the question would be answered because it would then um, upset this, the whole mythology around the gold seal, and it would then tourism to Kyushu would be way off. It would fall way off. Uh, domestic tourism, of course. Um, but he says, do it. Let, let's let government go in there. Let them let them take do the whatever the scientific tests are that can prove whether the thing is from the Han Dynasty or, uh, you know, from the Edo period in Japan. And he says, if I'm wrong, 
And if it turns out that Kamename is not the culprit here, sorry, spoiler alert, if he's not the culprit here, I will go to Kamename's grave, fall to my knees, and apologize to his spirit. You know, it was an incredible dramatic gesture that he makes. Um, but it, it, it's a very effective, I have to say, in, in, at least in print, it's very effective. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Josh, thank you so much. That was a really, I think, lovely note to end on um, in terms of the substantive part of our discussion of the book. And it's really been a pleasure to talk with you about this. Now, we've talked about some aspects of the book. It's such a rich study. There's no way, you know, we will have gotten to all of the really, even the really fascinating parts of the book um, in the course of an hour. So with that in mind, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it? Um, you know, I think, Carla, I think you've managed to touch on all the important things. The one the one thing that we didn't talk about, I, I touched on it briefly, um, was a handful of other seals, three or four other seals mm-hmm. uh, from a roughly a contemporaneous period, which are always brought into the discussion. Um, one of the nice things about publishing, there's a downside to this, but one of the nice things about publishing this book with Grill was that they allowed me to put a handful of color prints in um, mm-hmm. so we can get, we can see all those, those seals um, very nicely. The, the downside, of course, is that Grill books are very expensive. So I suggest to readers who are, to listeners who are very interested that they just order the book and deal with the paying of it later, <laughs> paying for it later. It's very, very expensive, real, as you know, real, real. Right. Um, so that's, I think, I think you managed to cover, uh, touch all the appropriate bases. Great. So now that the book is out, and congratulations, as, as I think is, um, I'm sure, abundantly clear to listeners, it's a really fascinating book, and it's really a, a stupendous accomplishment just taking into account all the work um, and all the historiographical reading and translation that went into it, in addition to all of the really interesting conceptual work that it's doing. But now that it's out, um, what's next for you? Are th- is there any project or are there uh, any projects right now that are particularly inspiring you? Well, I got a, a couple of things, um, uh, and, and I won't belabor them. But one is uh, was just it, it's been accepted. It's going to come out by University of California Press, and it's not like I wrote it in the last six months. I've been working on this on and off for decades, um, and it's a study of the very first Japanese um, mission in the modern era to China, mm-hmm. 1862, and there were all these travel reports that were written by the Japanese. And then a few years ago, we discovered the Chinese correspondence on the uh, bureaucratic correspondence on the other side when they met with the with the Shanghai officialdom. And so I, I put all that together and, and um, have a manuscript on that. That's but that's done and, and it'll be out, I hope, sometime later this year. Um, the thing that I've just started working on um, and will probably occupy me for quite some time is I, I I want to write, I don't know why I didn't do this earlier, but um, for whatever reason, uh, I write a, a textbook for teaching Japanese to students of, of Chinese history and culture. Hmm. So uh, I've, I've come up, I've talked to one or two people, and, and uh, I've, I've come up with a kind of, um, what's the right word, uh, a model for how to outline such a textbook and, you know, and then we'll deal with important sources and how to read them. And then it's going to be very simply, you know, um, 
a text, how to read it, and how I don't understand it, and what are the buzzwords, and who is the author, and uh, where does it appear, and what does that mean, and you know, those kinds of uh, basic kind of questions that we, living in the Anglophone world, you know, we know when we pick up a, a copy of Modern China, as opposed to, say, a copy of um, Critical Asian Studies, or as opposed to a copy of the Journal of Asian Studies, what the what the theoretical thrust is, um, but and we probably know it for China and Taiwan too. But as students of China, we don't necessarily, unless we've lived in that world, um, know it for Japan. And so that's that's going to be the um, part of the uh, the baggage that I'll explain. And then I mean, it's very simple, you know, not very simply, but very uh, point by point. Um, all of the vocabulary and how to how to understand it and, and how to read sentences and you know basic stuff for for students who've had elementary maybe two years of Japanese it'll be a, the next step. Great. Well, that sounds completely fabulous, and I want to copy immediately um, as does the first project. So um, I, let's keep in touch, and I'll look forward to talking with you um, in future months or years about either or both of those. And in the meantime, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure, and thank you so much for making the time, Josh. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.